the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to We Get Real AF. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. We have some exciting news to share. We've started a newsletter called The Power Source, which will feature what's now and next for women and girls in tech and science, more resources, more inspiration, more everything. And you can subscribe to The Power Source newsletter by visiting our website, wegetrealaf.com, and clicking subscribe. On to today's episode. Quite often on WeGraph, we talk about very futuristic technologies like artificial intelligence, space probes, and immersive virtual reality. Well, today we're talking about a technology that impacts every single one of us every day, whether we notice it or not. It shapes how people communicate with each other, how we get our news, and how we interact with our favorite brands. We're talking about social media, the technology platforms that enable it, and the rise of influencers. Those everyday people, some are real and some are elaborate AI bots, who gain our trust and give us their guidance. Our guest is an expert in the world of social media. May Karwowski is the founder and CEO of Obviously, a premier influencer marketing agency working with some of the world's most iconic brands. We're so excited to have you on the show today. May, welcome. Welcome. Yeah. So before we dive into influencer marketing, what it is and what's uh, changing in it, we'd love for you to share with our listeners how they can find you and how they can find Obviously. Yeah, definitely. So we're online at obvious.ly and then we're on Instagram at obviously. Um, and then you can find me personally at M-A-E-W-O-W um, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so Maywow is my, my handle for short. Awesome. Love it. Well, let's dive in then. Let's talk about uh, maybe just a high level what influencer marketing is and um, how technology platforms on social media in particular have changed the way companies are handling their branding. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, talking about influencers, um, an influencer is a, pers- is a person who has um, you know, logged into a social media platform, has created an account, and has organically grown their audience on that account. Um, so they, you know, they might have several thousand followers, they might have hundreds of thousands of followers and, um, and they have influence because when they talk about something or they talk about a cause they believe in or a resort that they love to go to, or, you know, a type of food or dish that they like to make people listen and people take note. Um, so they're, they're influential and influencer marketing is, um, actually working with those influencers who have these audiences and, um, pairing brands with those people so that all of a sudden they can talk about a specific brand, a specific product, um, and their audience can learn more about it. It seems like it's such a disruptive technology and I know that it's not brand, brand new, but it's pretty new, right? Like when I was a kid, advertising was pretty much direct to the consumer. The brand would tell you through an ad what you're supposed to think about them. And now they're turning to this larger community. Can you talk a little bit about um, when this started to become a phenomenon and when you sort of took note of it and decided it was a good place to get involved and start your company? Definitely. So I think if you look at the kind of the span of advertising, there has always been celebrity endorsements. 
you know, you have Michael Jordan wearing Air Jordans and he's on TV and he's on in posters and he's got like a brand new Nike drop. Um, so that concept's been around forever uh, or relatively forever. And then I think that the big change here was that these social platforms just came onto the scene and all of a sudden you could have an Instagram account, you could have a TikTok account. Um, an ordinary person can just, you know, start to amass a following because they have really cool, fun content and people like what they're doing. Um, so I think it's it, it's new in that, you know, there aren't any gatekeepers anymore. You don't need to be a basketball player. You don't need to be an A-list actor um, to actually be working with these brands. And in that way, it's um, it, it's really cool because, you know, it's like, hey, if you have the drive and you are creating cool content, you too could work with Nike. And isn't that, doesn't that open the door to uh, relatability too? You know, that's why the ordinary person appeals to uh, the masses. And can we argue now that celebrities are trying to emulate that, mm -hmm. the authenticity and on their YouTube and Twitter, Instagram accounts, et cetera, they're trying to show more at home, more, hey, I'm just like you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of in the great equalizer right? Uh, social media, anyone who has a phone <laughs> um, can be on can be on social media, and can create content and can be, you know, have essentially a brand new career that wasn't really in, in existence a decade, a decade ago. Um, and that's, that's really cool. You don't have to be a basketball player, you don't have to be a Kardashian, you don't have to have a TV show um, to be working with really big brands, and to, you know, have access to a, and grow a large audience. How did you get interested in entering this field? Where, what, at what point did you see the opportunity here and what spoke to you about this? Yeah, so I was uh, straight out of college. I was really interested in social media. Um, I w started working at a large agency and I was you know, running the Twitter account for Coke Zero and I was doing the Facebook pages for The Real Housewives, which was like yeah. really funny at the time. <laughs> um, and and I was, there was just such an active community on these platforms. And I just really felt that brands were spending a lot of money trying to get Facebook likes, get Twitter followers, um, kind of just like towards these vanity metrics that didn't make as much sense as what was actually happening, which was like, these people love this brand and just want to talk about it. And they think it's really cool. The brand's responding and it, the brand is now more relatable and more interesting. Um, and actually the coolest part is having the brand now work with people who have their own audiences. Um, so you could be, you know, working with a mom who lives in Nebraska, who's a chef and has a restaurant and her story is really interesting and you'd never otherwise know it. Um, and now, you know, Campbell's Soup can, can work with that woman. And, and, and that's, that's really awesome. And that wasn't possible like a decade ago. So how many followers makes someone a viable influencer? to a brand? So I think people would be surprised by how few followers you can have and still work with some very large brands. Um, so we actually use the term nano influencer to be someone who has like a thousand followers. Um, and, and you can actually be working with some very big brands. For example, say that you love mountain biking um, and you're a mountain biking company. You look at someone with 2000 followers and all of those people are diehard mountain bikers. If I give that bike to that person, um, you know, all of their followers are going to be like, oh, cool, I'm really paying attention. So there's a real way that brands are working with the long tail of influencers, which means like much smaller audiences, very niche, very verticalized, highly engaged, and just working with a lot more of those people. Um, and that's really where the technology that we built came in, because it's, it's really hard to work with a thousand people who like mountain bikes who have 2000 followers each. It's a lot easier to call up one person who has, you know, 
200,000 followers and give them a mountain bike. So tell us about the service that obviously provides. How is your company standing in that gap? Yeah, so we really make it easy for a brand to work with 2,000 influencers globally or 10,000 influencers globally. Uh, And that's kind of the first level. The second level is, are you working with the right influencers for the brand? And are they driving the right results for you? I think we all know, like, you know, a quote unquote influencer who is always hawking different brands and different products, but most likely, you know, isn't selling very many or doesn't have very much engagement actually on, on their account or on their profile. So we really kind of go a layer deeper and say, okay, here's the follower count, here's the engagement, but here's how much like sales and revenue they're driving um, for your company. How are you sifting through all of the noise? Because as we just said, there's anybody can be an influencer and there are tons out there doing their thing and have really cool content. So how do you sift through all of that? Well, yeah, it's a really interesting challenge, right? Because um, if your account is public on any of these platforms, which if you're an influencer and trying to grow your audience, most likely you're, you're public, um, all of that information is, at, is really accessible to anyone. So it's just a very, very large data set that you're kind of creating the right parameters for and saying, okay, if, you know, of people who have 50,000 followers, what's the percentage of their audience that is liking or commenting on their posts? Let's do um, a content analysis on what types of comments and what's the sentiment of those comments. And are they all emojis or are people writing really thoughtful responses? Um, When someone does a brand sponsored post, does it perform as well or better or worse? than their posts that are not branded. Uh, And so there's a lot of data to work with. It's just really making sure that you're, you know, looking for the right thing um, to really draw the the right results. You have all this data, like you just spoke about. Are there algorithms that you're using? I know that I'm, I used to be pretty active on Instagram. And I know that influencers were always lamenting about how Instagram was changing its algorithm, and they would have to sort of Um, pivot in the way that they were spreading their message and positioning themselves in order to continue to attract the right followers and get the right number of likes and all that sort of thing. And then I also know that there are people who can buy those kinds of, I mean, there are services out there that buy fake likes, fake, I don't know if there's fake comments, but so are you using AI? What kinds of technology are you using to try to distill all of that and figure out what's authentic and what's fake? Yeah, definitely. So it's true. You can, you know, there are a lot of bots on all of these social platforms, no matter, you know, how hard the platform is trying to, to weed them out. But there are a lot of indicators that you can really assess with a good degree of certainty, how many or if a person has bought followers or bought engagement, um, you just need to be looking for certain certain flags. So one, for example, is if you're on Instagram, how, what percentage of your followers don't have a profile photo? Of those people, what percentage have never posted a photo? How many of those people have one or zero followers themselves? How many of those people haven't logged in in the last month? You know, where do all of your followers live? And are they mapping to certain regions that are known for having more bot activity? Um, So once you kind of run through this list, and there are several more factors that we look at, we can have a pretty good picture with a relative degree of certainty that... uh, oh, they actually bought quite a few of their followers. I would think it would be pretty daunting if you're a brand, especially if you're a smaller brand, to figure out what's real and what's fake and what works and what doesn't. And also, um, who is on the rise and who's on the descendant? Because I imagine that just like 
anything else, people's influence waxes and wanes, you know, over time. Yeah. And the thing that makes it actually more complicated is someone might be really influential in one area, but not another. And like a brand might really resonate, you know, Coca-Cola really resonates with this one influencer's audience. But when they talk about Chef Boyardee falls totally flat, or when they talk about cell phones falls totally flat. Um, so that's another really interesting thing too, is like, who are they speaking to? And does the, the brand make sense to that audience or, or will it perform well? So it's, there's kind of like always added layers of optimization you have to do as, as you work with the brand. Um, and then things are different platform to platform as well. It, it's a really cool space because it's changing so quickly. Um, and, and, and so it's, I, I really enjoy that part of it. Sounds like there's a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about, I've seen a lot of influencers sometimes uh, teaming up with another influencer and when it's advantageous to do that. Yeah, definitely. So cross promotion is a really great strategy and it can work extremely well. So you have a great audience. Someone you like has a great audience. Maybe there's not much of an overlap between your two audiences. If you show up in each other's posts and you're tagged in them, it's a really great way to now get in front of a totally new audience or a partially new audience. And, you know, like TikTok has some of these features built in, which just makes it that much more easy to grow your audience there. If you're doing a duet or you're doing a split screen, you're now being seen by a ton of new people. It's also why there are TikTok houses, you know, all of a sudden like, oh, I know about a house. I then go into the house and then, you know, check out people in the house. And then I check out the people they're hanging out with. Oh, they're hanging out with people at another house. Okay. And then I now start to follow all of them. Um, it's very similar to the way like friend groups in real life. Work. So does it make it more appealing for a brand to team up with a team of influencers or individual since they're hitting up two different markets potentially? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question because, you know, on one hand, you're reaching more overall people at the same time, there's going to be a lot of crossover. So you're going to reach a lot of the same people if all of those influencers hang out and their audiences are, are all overlapping. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it depends on, hey, am I really trying to reach a certain target audience a lot of times? And have I found that that works really well for a certain brand? Or am I just trying to work and see as many people as possible, have them see and experience my brand? Um, and maybe I should work with with a larger group of influencers who have whose audiences don't overlap as much. Interesting, because yeah, I know that you mentioned uh, earlier that like the quality versus quantity was important. Definitely. There's also a big question around like like kind of the art and science of it, right? Like when you have, it's always great when an influencer has a relationship with a brand where they're they're posting many times. So it's not just a one-off. They're like, oh yeah, that influencer really loves that jewelry brand. She's always wearing the jewelry and she's always talking about it. And that, you know, it just shows art. She really likes it that much more than if she posted about it once. At the same time, if you're looking at it from the science and the marketing aspect of it, how many times is overkill to hit a certain audience where you're now paying for a view on the same audience? One, you want to build a strong relationship and you also want to make sure that you're maximizing, uh, you know, the, the views in terms of, you know, the amount of money you're, you're spending. Hey, everybody. Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Are brands pretty savvy to all this or are they... And I guess maybe, again, it depends on the size of the brand and the kinds of resources that they have at their disposal. But it seems to me much more complicated than picking 
the movie star who's going to be the face of your face cream, for example, and controlling the message because now you're not really completely in control of the message anymore, right? So um, how are brands adapting to this and are they embracing it or is it just something that they're going along with because they don't have a choice? I mean, brands really run the gamut. I think that's what's so fun to have so many different brand clients and meet with so many different brands and see where they're at. I mean, we have clients who are really on the cutting edge and they'll bring us ideas and things they want to do and we're like, oh, that's awesome. We've never done that before. Like, yeah, let's do it. And then we have other very large, you know, Fortune 100 companies who are just starting to work with influencers. And we're doing a ton of education, a ton of pretty basic testing, um, just to make sure that they're really seeing like the value immediately. And they're kind of dipping their toe in the water because it is so new. So you really have people kind of at every end of the spectrum. I would be curious to know um, if you could walk us through, like if I'm a brand and I come to you and I say, I, I want to try influencer marketing, kind of walk me through that process and then do the same thing if I'm a wannabe, would be up and coming influencer. How do you start that relationship and vet them and then guide them? Yeah, totally. It's actually, it's really interesting too, because the two perspectives are pretty different. And I think the influencers who are do a, are really successful with brand partnerships kind of know how to get into that brand marketer frame of mind. And the brands who do a really good job with influencers can kind of get into that influencer, you know, step into their shoes and understand, okay, what's going to be like the most valuable for them. So if a brand comes to work with, obviously we would first say, okay, like what are your goals? Um, is it to, you know, brand awareness uh, among a, a certain segment um, of the population, you know, which country, uh, you know, like women, men, age group, hobbies, tell us everything. The other thing, so after goals, we look at yeah, what type of influencers do you want to work with and what type of audiences do you want to reach? We then look at what are the incentives that you have? You know, some brands have products that we can send to influencers. Other brands are services-based. Can we offer those services? Which services can we offer? Um, what's going to be the best overall experience for, for an influencer so that they can create really great content, but also really experience everything that the, the brand's about um, so that it it's authentic and they can really, you know, speak truthfully and, and honestly about what they like or don't like about the brand. Um, and then, then we talk through reporting, uh, measurement, and then how do we optimize at the end of a campaign? Because you're always going to have, you know, a top 25%. These are the best influencers who perform the best for you according to your goals. Now, how do we find more people like that for you to keep working with? And then if you're on the influencer side, it really helps if you really approach it like a career. And I think there are different types of influencers. There are people who just do it for fun. They kind of fell into a niche. They have great content. They have great personality. And they just kind of take off on their own. There are other people who, I mean, they consider this a job. They're really trying to make money from it. They're trying to grow their audience, grow their career, diversify revenue streams. And so there are kind of different approaches you'd want to take. But in general, you have to be really consistent with the content that you're creating. It's hard to post once a day. If you're on TikTok, we have TikTokers we work with. They're posting 10 times a day. I feel like my job's hard, but that's really hard. And then making sure that they have a, they have a specific niche. They have something that they talk about. You look at their profile. You're like, this makes sense. It's not all over the place. Kind of sticks to one or two themes. Um, and then we can really see strong growth, not just in follower size, but in engagement, which typically your engagement is higher when you're smaller because um, you have a really hardcore fan base. But, you know, say you get to a million followers, how do you post something that, you know, 2% of those people respond positively to? It's a lot harder than if you have a, a thousand people. Um, so that, that's really important too. 
And then making sure when you do work with a brand, it's a brand you actually really like and you do a great job integrating the brand into your content so it doesn't look like really jarring or weird. Um, And I think we've all seen really bad (laughs) influencer marketing from influencers. So making sure that you don't do that. So so your audience is like excited about every brand you work with rather than saying like, oh, is this person selling out? Um, And it can be a line to walk, but it's really important. With the reporting piece of that, how do you guys um, report on metrics? I mean, clearly you're following an influencer. You can see like comments and likes and whatnot, but I'm, sh- I'm assuming there's something on the back end that you use. And is it a combo of both on the brand and on the influencer side with reporting the metrics on how, they're, how each post is doing or he, how each campaign is doing? And then a follow-up to that question would be if you could explain for me personally and for our listeners the the difference between impressions and engagement. If you're looking at anything that's on a social platform that's public, that's really easy to track. So followers, you know, view to subscriber ratio, um, engagement, anything that I log on to Instagram, I log on to TikTok, I can see with my own eyes, that's pretty easy to pull. Um, and, and any brand can, can see that. So you want to make sure those stats are good if you're an influencer. Uh, and then there's, okay, I posted a link. How many people clicked through on that link? Um, and then, you know, to, to your point, Vanessa, on the brand side, they need to have the tracking in place to say, of all the people who clicked on this link, here's how many people, you know, spent X amount of time on the site. Here's how many people actually put something in their cart and click buy. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's really important. And the difference, so an impression is just someone having seen something. So I saw a post in my feed, it was a cute dog. Um, engagement is I actually liked, I took action. I liked it or I commented on it. Super cute dog. So the impression though, is there a certain amount of time that you have to uh, have your gaze on the actual post or is it literally just scrolling through? It counts as an impression. It's really set per platform and they're the ones deciding what a view is. Is it just scrolling past it? Literally, I, it, it had to be on my screen at some point. Did I actually stop and look at it? Um, Facebook actually ran into some trouble on this um, with, with video ads um, a few years back and that they were saying, you know, like, hey, this counts as a v- video view. And I was like, no, they, they just saw that there was video there. They didn't necessarily click through or they didn't necessarily watch a certain amount of it. Very interesting. So you've got your micro-influencers and you've got the the big the ones with the big audiences. And I would imagine to your earlier point that the engagement rate that looks good is very different for each of those two groups. What's a good engagement rate for say under 10,000 on Instagram? And what's a good engagement rate for somebody who's like a hundred thousand or whatever is considered a large number? I mean, do you, are there, are there metrics like that, that you look for? Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble though. Um, because then <laughs> inevitably you're going to find an awesome influencer who has like the right aesthetic that the brand's really excited about. And then they're like, oh, engagement rate isn't exactly there. But for them, it's maybe more important that a person like looks a certain way or, you know, is part of a certain community or has a certain like aesthetic or values and belief system that they really want to work with that person. And so there's a lot of variability but definitely, you know, over 1% is important. The higher, the better, honestly, if you're under 10,000 followers. And then at that 100,000, yeah, we're really hoping you can maintain that 1%. Now, that being said, if you're super specific and super niche, we see influencers all the time who, who have like better or worse engagement rates, and they get a lot of brand work. Same thing with influencer pricing, honestly, like it's, it's really all over the place. 
Um, so that's why we really like to take it brand by brand and campaign by campaign and say like influencers are in love with your products. We think we can do X, Y, and Z for you um, versus maybe a brand that fewer people know about or their product isn't as cool and we need to kind of shift um, expectations based on that. And those are the people who probably need more influencer marketing anyway. So could obviously have existed as a company 20 years ago? Not in its current form, that's for sure. I mean, I think we could have been doing like celebrity endorsements or word of mouth um, and, you know, hey, let's, let's find all of the, you know, coolest tastemakers in Chicago and invite them to a party and I'll give them the same clothing. Like there are a number of things that you do with influencers that are kind of out of that word of mouth PR playbook. Um, but now we've really adapted them to, hey, you can actually measure this online now. It's not just, oh yeah, I heard about that cool designer. Um, how did I hear about it? So I think it, it would have been in a different form. It would have been much less measurable and analytical. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even when I started the company, I was looking at, you know, hey, there's this whole like trend forecasting, you know, people who just went into cool sneaker stores in uh, different parts of New York or like in different cool neighborhoods and just were like, hey, kids are really gravitating to this one shoe, like, and then just interviewing them. I studied a lot of anthropology too um, in college. And I was like, oh, there's like this element of just figuring out what's cool and what's different and why people talk about specific brands. They don't talk about other brands. A little bit of a tangent, but I, 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 think, I think it is relevant. Do you pair that with actual like math mm-hmm. and analysis now? It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see how certain things take off and other things don't. Yeah. What are your thoughts on AI influencers? Because clearly we've talked about, you know, relatable, ordinary people. What do you feel about these computer generated, I call them avatars or mascots because that's what they are, but they look so real. Um, so let's, let's kind of dive into that and your thoughts. So, and I might, I might be wrong. Someone might pull this tape like 10 years from now. <laughs> so that'd be cool, honestly. Uh, but you know, I just, I don't get, I don't get the buzz around it. I mean, I think that it's cool in theory. It's really cool that you can create an avatar that can do X, Y, Z. And I think as like a fiction experiment, it's akin to, you know, writing a book, but in, you know, 2020 and putting it on Instagram and having this person do all these things. And as a creative exercise, it's really cool. But it's kind of like, would I rather see, you know, a hologram of Prince perform at, at a concert versus like actually seeing Prince at a concert. Like I still would rather see Prince in in person in concert. Um, So I think of it as a little bit of a flash in the pan, but I also could be very wrong. I kind of feel that way too, just because to me, there's such a disconnect between the whole idea behind an influencer is that it's not somebody that the brand created. It's a real person, a real mom, wife, woman, whatever, like me, that I can relate to and that I can trust. And if it ends up being something that's created and curated by the brand, then that whole authenticity, which is Mm-hmm, the point mm-hmm. of influencers seems to be um, lost. So I don't get it. But I do know that like the one I always think of mm-hmm. is Lil Michaela, the AI, um, <laughs> you know, she really influencing people. I mean, I guess she is. What's your experience with her? And she, by the way, for our listeners, Lil Michaela, if you don't know, is an AI influencer. Uh, she's completely computer generated, not a real person. But she has a lot of followers on Instagram, like millions, I think. Yeah, I mean, I see that as almost like, a comic book or something, right? Like, and, and then a brand doing an endorsement or an ad in a comic book. It's not looking down on it. It's really cool. I mean, it's literally like a new story every day. 
but I, I just think it, you know it could get kind of played out. Whereas when you're following an influencer, even if it's someone who's like super high fashion, really put together, like I want to know where they went during quarantine. Like I want to like, oh, like are they dating someone or like what's their deal right now? Like how's their job going? And and, and all these features are making mm-hmm. it you know easier and easier. Instagram Live, TikTok Live, like actually being able to learn more and more and more about these people, like they're your actual friends. Um, to kind of be always confronted with the reality that like, oh, this is actually, you know, not a real person. Well, and to the point of authenticity, like these AI influencers, if they're working with brands, they're hearing what, you know, what you want to hear, you know, it's basically very catered to you. And the more you use it, the more the AI knows what you like and what you don't like. So that's what this uh, presenting you. That brings a question to to my mind with real people, real real influencers. How do you handle someone who's giving an honest review that might not be the most glowing with a brand? How does that work? You need to be honest and you should never be promoting a brand that you don't actually like or a product you don't actually like. Now, a lot of times in our contracts, we'll say, if you don't like this, and actually, normally we screen people before. Do you like this brand? Are you excited about them? What are products that you like from, of theirs? So we generally know that it's not going to be, they've never encountered this brand or this product before. Usually they are already fans. But we're like, if you don't like it, and like you're signing a contract to talk about it, like literally there's a clause, send it back. Like, you know, just tell us you don't want to do it. Um, because we'd much rather in, in a paid forum, like, you know, post organically in your Instagram stories or post about how you didn't like it but don't do that in, in the format of actually like a brand sponsorship. Um, you know, that's like a celebrity taking a celebrity endorsement for, for the face cream and then turning around and be like, actually, I hate that face cream. <laughs> you're like, what? Right. <laughs> we have right. in here. Um, so I think it's, it's just making sure that you're being honest about that. And we would, you know, you say you don't want to do this. You say you don't like the product. You send it back. Like, totally fine. We actually had one very well-known brand who had a real issue with one of their products um, and it was actually like oxidizing and turning a weird green color and it was a, a beauty product and we we're like, okay, everyone just send it back. <laughs> like if you don't want to keep it, we'll give you something else. Um, and, and they're like, yeah, I love the brand. This was clearly just an error. They caught it in time. Like, sure, let's just do that. I've never worked with an influencer agency, but I did back when I was more active on Instagram, um, work with a brand and I didn't like, it was a hair care product and I didn't like it at all. And I tried it and then they sent me a new formulation. And I didn't like that one. And we just sort of pulled the plug and they were really nice about it. And, you know, it, it ended well for exactly that reason. You don't want somebody lying basically about your product. And if you're in that position where you're repping a brand, you don't want to be untruthful about it. So good point to, to yeah, spread and again, that. Yeah, to get kind of, full circle here with the AI influencer, are you really going to get that? Are you going to get that interaction? Are you going to have that conversation, et cetera? So interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's actually not going to perform as well. Like we can tell that if someone really Mm -hmm. likes a product, their posts will more often than not perform much better than someone who even just feels neutral about a product. So, so yeah, that is, that is really important. I mean, one cool thing that we're seeing a lot of now is actually brands will get a group of influencers who are really knowledgeable in the space, say like people who know a ton about beauty, people who've tried every mascara on the market and have an opinion on all of them and give them a new mascara that the brand's coming out with. And then like ask their opinion, do a focus group, take a survey. And the brand's like, wow, we just got a ton of great feedback. Like, this is all awesome. <laughs> Like, you know, we were just, you know, our chemists were doing their thing. And now we actually have a ton of people who are very knowledgeable weighing in and making our products better. 
Um, so I think, I think brands are just going to get more and more collaborative as we go. Great point. Mm-hmm. I have a question about the platforms themselves. This seems like there's a new social media platform on the rise every few years. You know, um, first it was Facebook, then Instagram, Snapchat was a thing for a while. Um, and I guess it still is in some markets or some age demographics, TikTok. Now there's mm-hmm. Clubhouse, right? Um, so do you see any that uh, social media platforms that are kind of becoming less influential and is, is everybody sort of flocking to some other ones? And what are those? It's a really good time to be launching a social platform right now. You know, for the last few years or at least, you know, five years or so, it was really hard to launch a platform. Instagram and Facebook and YouTube kind of had, you know, had a corner on a majority of especially brand spend, but also like there are different pockets and Snap has been successful, Pinterest has been successful, but for the most part, it was like Facebook and Google, um, you know, Facebook owning Instagram and, and Google owning YouTube that were kind of the two really big players in the room. Um, and now I think especially with TikTok coming in and being so disruptive and just growing so quickly and users spending so much time on the platform, it's really kind of opened the floodgates for a lot of other platforms to be like, oh, you don't need to spend all your time on Instagram anymore. On average, 45 minutes a day per monthly active user in the U.S. Um, on TikTok. Like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> That's so much mm-hmm. time. Um, and and it's, it's over twice the amount of time they're spending on Instagram. So I think you're, you're really now seeing there are a ton more platforms out there. And if you're an influencer, it's really, really important to evaluate a lot, all of the new platforms as they come out and test them out because it's the people who get on early who, you know, end up on their featured page. And so many influencers are simply influencers because they got in on the ground floor. They got in early when there was a ton of organic distribution before there were ads um, and they were able to really build a following. So, I mean, it's always a balance between don't you know spread yourself so thin across a billion platforms, but you should be actively checking them out. You should be seeing like, oh, could this really work for me? Am I seeing some initial success on this platform? Um, because it's those those initial opportunities on a on a platform that actually takes off that are going to transform your career as an influencer. Because this is a technology podcast, and obviously, what we're really talking about at the end of the day is digital communication, human to human communication through digital media. So. May, in your opinion, how is social media shaping our human-to-human interaction? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a mixed bag? Is it just changing it in a, in a way that's interesting but not necessarily good or bad? What do, what do you think about like just honest human-to-human communication as a result of all this digital connection we have now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think you could write many, many books on, on the, the pluses and minuses Um, I mean, I would say it's definitely mixed um, and it's different for different people. Spending a ton of time on your phone, comparing yourself to other people, um, body image issues like, uh, you know, bullying. There's a lot of negative. uh, There are a lot of negatives. Um, And then at the same time, there's so many positives. I mean, we work with so many influencers who they had like part time jobs. They're now making literally millions of dollars. They didn't have to go through, you know, some casting agent. They didn't have to be discovered in a mall. Like they're just doing it themselves. They're, you know, filming in their closet and like doing an awesome job. And like all of a sudden they're launching huge brands, making real money. Um, And I think it's a, it's a really kind of great way to become an entrepreneur. And then also like connect with people that you otherwise wouldn't maybe stay connected to. My husband and I met a couple at a bar, Green Bay Packers bar in Paris, because my husband really wanted to see the game. 
And I'm still friends with these people because we're on Instagram, you know, like what? I literally met them one time. That wouldn't have happened or maybe it would have, but um, it's very, very different. You know, you now have, you can kind of tendentially keep tabs and interact with people who might have otherwise been like, you know, fleeting, a fleeting connection in your life. So I think there's a lot of pluses and minuses, and I think it's really changing rapidly every day. Social media is directly impacting not just the front page, but every page of every newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I mean, you think of if you want to go down a rabbit hole, children and social media that freaks me out as a mom of a toddler <laughs> um, and a, a newborn. Like, what is it going to be when they get to? interact on these channels and it gives me a little bit of anxiety just thinking about it. But um, Sue has three girls too, you know, interacting on social media Mm -hmm. all the time. So it's interesting, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. It is what we make it. And the platforms are so new and there could be a lot more guardrails, you know, there could be a lot more regulation there. There should be honestly. Um, And that's, that's okay. We're in early days, but I think that we all are kind of active participants in it. (laughs) And it's not just like, oh, you know, what does Jack Dorsey at Twitter decide? It's like, no, we also should advocate for what we want to, because it is an integral part of our of our lives now. Like with all of our technologies, right? It's putting the human first and staying in control of that. I guess one of the concerns that I have is just because it seems like social media really is mostly consumed by really young, still more malleable audiences. Is that changing? Are there more people who are middle-aged or older even who are using these platforms or is it still pretty much like, you know, people in their 20s and younger? I mean, there are there are a lot more people like you know, older people who are on these social platforms now. Um, And, you know, even just anecdotally, we do a lot of work with brands who want to reach like, you know, women like at a more advanced age for, you know, different types of skin creams and like different uh, vacation resorts, clothing companies. Um, And there are more and more influencers in, um, in those age groups now than there were even a year ago. I think that's great. You know, just there's more of a diversity of voices and like, okay, here are real people and what are they doing? Um, So I I love that trend. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about your career and your journey in tech and your interest in tech. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always been really, really interested in ideas. And actually, you know, your question about like, is technology good or bad for society was something that I was like, oh, like, that's what I want to study. You know, I want to be a journalist who talks about that. And I didn't end up doing that, but I ended up like, you know, founding a company in that space where we're kind of grappling with that and those questions all day, every day. I think that's what really excites me. It's like, oh, what's possible now that this technology came out? What can we do with it? How, how do we sell it? You know, what do people want to see from it? How can we change people's lives with it? Um, so on a very abstract high level, that's what I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, I graduated college. I was a philosophy major. And so again, like ideas breaking down arguments, figuring out like, you know, different modes of thinking and um, went to work at a startup and then immediately liked just like, okay, cool. You can literally build something online and then, you know, people can start interacting with it and then you figure out what to do next. Like, what a cool idea. Um, and so I think, yeah, technology is fantastic. And, and it just lets you really have the freedom to create your own career. You know, I, I learned how to do that at a startup. Then I went to a big agency, learned about social media, went to another company, a fashion e-commerce company called Guild. Great experience. And I was like, oh, I could do this and build a company myself and like using technology. And yeah, it's just kind of opened a ton of doors. Was it hard to start your own company? You know, I think it was good that there were a lot of things I didn't know um, (laughs) when I started the company. (laughs) I was like, 
oh, I have a great idea. I'm really excited about it. I did know a lot of people in social media. Um, I, I did have a great group of contacts that I could pull on who were, you know, at so many different brands who are willing to just, you know, have a coffee with me, listen to me, see if there was any interest, if they could scrounge up any budget at their company. Um, and so, so that was a huge leg up. And I think that is some like a strength that I do have. Um, I think really being able to take a survey of what you're really good at and what you're not good at. Um, and then just being really aware of that as you launch a company. So I knew I could, I could really build a product that could drive revenue. I think the part that I know I'm not as good at is like the operational nuts and bolts of building a company. So then it's like, okay, I need to get a team to help with that. Exactly. Um, and yeah, it was, it was hard. It was, it's really hard. I mean, I work really hard every day. Um, but also it's, it's my company, which is really cool. What would be your three top tips for somebody who wants to become an influencer? Say one is uh, find a niche. Two is post consistently. And three is, you know, treat it like a job. So study your stats, um, figure out what works well, what doesn't network in your space, learn as much as you can find some brand marketers on LinkedIn and see if you can talk to them. Um, and so those are kind of my, my three big tips. I'll actually reverse the question to, for brands. Like what would be your advice for brands to really stand out with influencer marketing? I think you need to be really strategic. Um, so you need to know what your goals are going in. You need to know that you can, you're able to measure those towards those goals. And you also need to make sure that you're working at a scale to actually see results. If I'm working with three influencers and they each have 10,000 followers and I'm Nike, what's the likelihood that's going to move the needle for me? I'd say it's probably very negligible and it's going to be like lost in all the noise. If you're working with 3000 and you're working with every single high schooler who loves basketball, who lives in, you know, these States, I can measure that. I'm going to be able to see what actually happens there. That scale question is tricky for a lot of brands because they're new to it. So they're not ready to go all in. So then they just kind of dip their toe in the water. But now you've only worked with three people. And then you're like, it didn't work. And you're like, yeah, because we literally didn't work with enough people. Well, it's a client education, right? It's retraining your brain, especially if you've been in marketing for years and eons and eons. So yeah, it's so new that you've got to kind of treat it as a, a learning curve and, and kind of commit and see experiment, see what happens and then tweak. So mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. All righty, ladies, let's do some lightning round questions. You up for this, May? Yeah, let's do it. All right. May, how do you define success? That I feel like I'm growing every day. If you could choose a different profession other than the one that you have right now, what profession would you attempt? I would try to be a professional snowboarder. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. It might get really hurt in the process, but maybe. So is that a hobby? Do you do that on the side? or? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I wish there was a little more fun here, but yep. Cool. As much as we can. What resources do you wish existed for women in tech or looking to get into tech? Especially um, earlier in my career and as a student, I just wish I knew what my options were. It was kind of like lawyer, teacher, doctor. It was kind of like, okay, those are the things I can do. 
Whereas it's like, no, you could literally, you know, track stem cells. You know, you could, there's like a billion different really cool jobs that I actually have a notebook that I write down when I find out cool new jobs. I'm like, you could be a private investigator that like works for a hedge fund. Like, that's crazy. I, I wish I had known about all those things and talked to people who had those jobs and learned the plus and the minuses. Well, we were speaking to someone recently who said, you know what, there are jobs now that just didn't exist when I started mm-hmm. my career. So there's that power too. Totally. <laughs> Okay, May, what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Um, I had, like, it was some sort of brain. Some sort of brain? Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. I had, like, a Hannibal Lecter. What was the last one? Like, Red Dragon. <laughs> and scene for a second in my head. I'm like, wait a second, repeat Ooh. that. <laughs> so some type of brain. Got it. Yeah. That's weird. All right. <laughs> I always love asking this one, and I've got one for you if you don't have it, but I'm sure you've heard it. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? So I hear a lot of people, and I love this one, say that I look like Julia Stiles. Uh Yep, (laughs) ding, ding, that was mine. I was like, 100%. Like, I was like, if you don't have one, I'm going to give you one. (laughs) Thanks. I'm like, what a compliment. She's so cool. What is something about you that people would be surprised to know? I am actually, like, super disorganized. I'm pretty messy. I think I, I come across as more type A than that. What's a funny mistake you made when you were coming up and the story behind it? I think I was just like really, like, you know, people are like, oh, you need to ask for what you want. I was like very much that way. I'd be like, how do I make a ton more money at this company? <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, like very ballsy. I think was kind of what was, I would do that a lot. And so usually go well though one of our boss babes said like i'll ask for you what you want and mm-hmm. don't be afraid to ask for what you want so good job if you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global what would it be so this is a little niche but i think that a lot of women starting businesses think that they have to raise venture capital um in order to in order to be successful um and so all of a sudden they have a pretty large mountain to climb in front of them um whereas i never raised uh, VC money. I think a lot of really successful people have not raised VC money. Um, you just need to structure your company differently. I think that a lot of women who maybe feel like, hey, I can't do this, so therefore I can't start it, especially a tech company. Um, I don't. I like. They just. They don't even try. Um, I think that would be my. That that's my my mini my mini issue that I'm I'm really you know I really champion. Well, I guess this kind of goes hand in hand, but maybe there's something else. What myth? about women in tech and STEM would you like to dispel? Um, You don't need to know, you don't need to be really into science, I think, or you don't need to really be into tech. Like it doesn't need to be your major. It doesn't need to be something that like defines you at a young age. You can get into it later. I mean, so many guys I know, they just took a a coding course at some point and they're like, I'm a developer now. You know, like you can do that too. You can get into it later. Um, It's not predetermined by the age that you're, you know, 13. I think it's, it's great. And like, I love STEM education. I think it's awesome. But I think that there are a lot of people who are maybe, yeah, 25, 35, 45, who could actually get into some really cool roles. And it's, you know, age isn't really a barrier. How have you surprised yourself in your career journey? And it could be like a strength that you did not realize that you had. And you kind of spoke about this a moment ago when you were so ballsy when you were younger, but, or it could be a hang up that you realize now you shouldn't have worried about. So have you surprised yourself along the way? Uh, I think I've done a really good job working on my weaknesses. Um, I think there's always more things, but I think I've become a lot, a much better people manager and understanding like how people operate, um, how to, how to have really difficult conversations. I think I really struggled with that in the beginning. 
And, and now I think I am a lot better at that. So always, always room for improvement, but doing a lot of that. <laughs> Great. All right. Last one. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Try like a girl. Try like a girl. Mm-hmm. There you go. May, this has been great. Thank you so much. We've really enjoyed having you. This has been so, I mean, even for us, like I love learning more about this because so many social platforms, as we discussed, there are new ones coming out every day. And I feel like I try to keep up with everything, but each one has their own little quirks and influencer marketing is just all over the place. And it it fascinates me. Um, I love the possibilities and hopefully we'll overcome the challenges. And you've brought a lot of light onto this topic. These platforms are are just becoming more and more um, ever present. So uh, understanding them and understanding how to leverage them, I think is, is great for our listeners. So thank you so much. We wish you much continued success and would love to have you back again to tell us what you're up to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.